Hello everyone, welcome to the NeuroDive podcast. Um, I'm going to get straight into it because I've been chatting to my guest Eliza a little bit in the sort of preamble and then I keep saying stuff and saying no we need to save this for the podcast because you know, we don't, don't want to give away the good content just between us. Uh, hello Eliza, thank you Hi. for joining me. Um, I first came across your work, your your art, uh, obviously on, on Facebook, and then we were thrown into the uh, F the Narrative group together. Uh, and we've been kind of communicating through that, working together through that. And I just thought I would like to get you on here and hear more about your story, just direct from you, because, you know, there's a, there's a lot going on in that group. Uh, if anyone hasn't heard of or been to see one of the lives, uh, you, well, you won't know what I'm talking about, but you're not allowed to know what I'm talking about with within the WhatsApp group, that's for sure. Uh, uh, now, I the art. Let's start start with the art because I was. I like the fact you're like, even calling it art. That elevates it to another status. It is hundred percent. I mean, not being funny, Damien Hurst can crap on a like a bedclothes, and that's art. So, you know, <laughs> everything's up for grabs. But that sounds a lot harsher. Uh, <laughs> Your 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 artwork is the sort of artwork that when I saw it, it made me think, oh, that's it's so awesome and so simple. Perhaps I could do that. And then I remembered I'm it's it's not that simple. It's you know, I'm so bad at drawing that I can't I can't do anything like that. But I could not believe the amount of um sort of meaning that you get into just it's an outline isn't it really mm. it's you know I don't know what I was going to call it a stick drawing then it's not a stick drawing at all but you know it's, it's no but the, it's quite simple it's quite stripped back yeah um, that's yeah. it stripped back that's a much better way of saying yeah it. yeah is why do you do you do you have because because you post and, and draw about um things that you also advocate for Mm. Or is that is that where you think the sort of feeling comes from because it's so close to, to to your experience yeah I mean it's very close to home and I always say that I started doing it to help me process our experiences um when you're in um and living that day to day there isn't much space to process and I see that a lot with families that I speak to and I think that's a lot of where the trauma comes from you are probably day to day on quite an elevated level, I would say, because you're trying to get through all of those, well, the things that I draw and show, mm. there isn't really much time for sitting back and reflecting on that. Um, and for me as well, obviously, I mean, you know a bit now that I've discovered about my own neurodivergence, but you know, part of that is also that processing element for me doesn't happen in the there and then it takes me a bit of time. Mm. Um, so that was enormously pressurized being in those meetings at that time. And people asking me to make quite big decisions sometimes, and I didn't know what to do because I needed that time and that space to think about it. And then you're adding to that all those pressures as well of, you know, everything else around those situations. So once we were out of that system, it was really just helped me process everything that we had been through. And often I do leave quite a lot of space. I remember talking to one ed editor and she was like, 
there's a lot of space in your drawing you don't put a little background and I'm like well that's kind of the space where I'm always sort of thinking about it and and it's you know I'll put a little bit of dialogue but it's it's often the things that aren't said isn't it that are the impactful bits well especially the the the, the young person that's in it is always kind of in well not always but is often sort of in it whilst it very much feels like it's all going on around them and they're just there yeah. in, in a sort of you know in a, in a heap really yeah um, and I just think that's such a, a has as someone that's you know spoken to lots of young people over the years that is I'd imagine that's almost exactly how some of them feel it's just this stuff going on that is awful and how much and, are they you know, speaking in that and advocating for themselves it's a very difficult thing and you know I think a lot of that conversation is is happening between adults, isn't it? Whether it's the parents and professionals, very little is being said by that young person. And that's not because they're not given a chance to. It's just that I really struggle with a lot of that stuff around asking young people to communicate about things like that. I think that's incredibly difficult for them to reflect, articulate or analyse what they're feeling about things and we we do put a lot of onus on them to do that and and actually if we just look at how it's presenting that's our biggest indication on how they are affected by that environment that they're in so i think often you know those and i draw that quite a lot adults sort of saying to this child what don't you like about school why don't you like school and them just saying i don't know and that's often the response. I don't. How do you set? You know, how do you articulate that as a child of seven or eight to the school as well? Usually in a meeting, often yeah. like the one one time you've it's probably the first time you've seen all these adults in the same place together, and now they're all yeah. asking you these questions, and you yeah. you know your answer is actually because I think you're a bunch of whatever it is. <laughs> I can't yeah, yeah, say yeah. that here. It's really different though, isn't it? I don't know whether it's sort of where we've sort of picked up on this kind of modern way of doing a child therapy or child psychology. But my mum was saying when she went to teacher training, it was very much getting on a level with a child, sitting with them, being with them. That's how you learn to communicate with someone, not this direct, you know, therapy for a child is, again, you're putting so much demand on them. It's kind of like we've gone, we've gone to this sort of, a team around the child thing which again feeds into this idea that the parent is not the the only sort of source of information or the person that knows their child best or is probably best to advocate for them so it just draws yeah. away from the parent surrounds them by with loads of adults but it just shuts down the chance of the child being able to open up in the first place mm. um, yeah. we, we've got we, we went straight in at, with the with the artwork uh i was going to ask you if you'd be happy to share a bit of your background either as as a parent or I know you've had a a later in life kind of identification but mm. you know, are those those um is the young person in the picture ever you or is it always the children you've worked with or your own no children? no it's never me but I think um and that's what my new book is actually about is exploring my own neurodivergence and Part of the um, part of the idea that I put forward around that is I think that obviously as um, parents we fight very hard for our children because that's an instinct 
in us to do that when our children are struggling. But I also think that alongside that, we can see that misunderstanding with our children. And I think that resonates for us um, as neurodivergent parents. There is that sense of really recognising what that feeling feels like to be misunderstood. And I think that's a big word, but I think that feeling misunderstood is huge. And often that's something that we feel before we explore our own neurodivergence. And then we see it with our own children struggling, people not understanding, the supports even that they they want to use or want to offer. We have this sense of absolutely not, no, that's not gonna work. Why do they have to do that? And I think that's because we feel that, that real connection um, and alignment to our children because it's what we are too. We're neurodivergent. I think, you know, it's something we really have to explore as parents when our children are diagnosed. And often it is, oh, definitely it's dad, but women won't go down that route. And I think women, and that's the other side of the new book I'm doing is very much around the female perspective on this, because as women, as mothers, that judgment feels a lot greater on us, on our parenting, um, particularly when as neurodivergent women, we were probably called things like mad or weird, you know, so we've got all of that historical stuff. So, you know, I think it's really important to explore it. And I think that once we do that, then it's, it is another light bulb moment. There are many on this journey, but I do think it is another, oh, okay. That makes sense now. So was that, was it your experience of parenting that led you to that sort of realisation then? Um, it was a bit of both. It was probably also the connections that I've made as well. So I've, I've met a lot of people in this world now who are neurodivergent. Um, and that connection has been a lot easier for me and felt a lot safer and comfortable um, than a lot of the people that I knew in my in my previous life, if you like. So, you know, there was that as well. I think it just, you find that safe space to start to explore it and you make those different connections and, and then you're like, oh, okay, yeah. this does make sense. I am seeing people like me who can have a job and can have a relationship and can own a home, all those things, you know, because in that other world, when we see it, it's, um, it's a very negative deficit one, isn't it? Definitely, definitely. And I th yeah, I, I wonder, you know, I've had my own sort of journey there recently, and I wonder mm -hmm. how many people, if, because if you look at neurodivergent people on for the most part they would have had a, a medical diagnostic mm. and that would have only been put in place because of the amount of struggle they were experiencing yeah yeah and if we would put everybody from birth into some sort of brain machine that just said here's your neurotype yeah. i wonder how many would just have never you know like you say are out there mm. are not showing a high level of distress or struggle so they're not yeah. getting picked up on um yeah and you know sometimes we found other ways a lot of the adults i talk to who realize about their own neurodivergence talk particularly around the school issue which is something i write about um school-based anxiety 
um, as a child growing up in the 80s, I just had sick days, loads of them, you know. Now, I don't know if you could get away with that. I don't know if parents put kids under more pressure to go. I mean, I was very lucky. I had quite laid back hippie parents. So, you know, they weren't too bad about me having, you know, my dad worked from home, so it was doable. But I had a lot of sick days. Now, I don't know now on that percentage scale whether that would have got flagged up. Um, But it was all right then and I got away with it. So it's very interesting also to see that, how that would play out now versus then. Yeah, we almost make the, I certainly have made the assumption that back in the day it was a lot stricter, but there was that sort of period, 70s, 80s, 90s, where actually it was a bit more, it was it was left to the parent more, you know, it was left to the parent to decide if your child's Mm -hmm. well enough to come to school or not, you know, I think again, I've I've spoken about it before, but all the safeguarding stuff that's come in, which in Mm. lots of ways is essential, has actually kind of somehow been lumped onto parents of of neurodivergent children and young people as if they're not going to school because the parent's neglectful in some way. Whereas Mm. actually it's, it's usually more the parents intuitively saying, no, they can't cope with this at the moment. Mm. Yeah, um, and I don't know, maybe parents are a bit more in tune to kids now, know when they're struggling. You know, I was definitely still having, well, they were called temper tantrums, but I had them, you know, well into my, well, they never sort of stopped really through up to my teenage years. Um, but perhaps now in modern parenting, parents would see that as a level of distress or overwhelm, whereas, you know, hippie parents smoking roll-ups mucking about you know the benign neglect of that era I didn't really you know he's a free she's spirit a she's, just a, she's just a pain in the neck isn't she I don't know but it's very different isn't it now we have a bit more understanding of stuff like that as well so the book yeah when's it out what's it called uh so my second book can't not won't is out in December and that is all around um the the missing the mark blog that you've seen so around the school attendance um and then my next book um I haven't got a date for it yet but that is gonna hopefully be called Thumbsucker and it is um based on different names that I was called but I think they're names that lots of people relate to being called if you're neurodivergent um and then exploring what those names were actually linked to and those stories behind those names and it's not a medical diagnostic tick boxy book at all it's really just a sort of comic strips exploring that in a sort of semi-autobiographical way to sort of help parents think about it a little bit maybe let those people off in their family that they feel a bit cross with sometimes because they didn't get them and to maybe see well they're probably neurodivergent too, you know, so it is a historical exploration really of, of neurodivergence um, in a slightly funny way and a nice way, I hope. Um, and, the, you know, the, the, the podcast, which I, I listened, uh, started listening to yesterday um, and was immediately irritated by how well done it was. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> in comparison, I was like, I've got to get Eliza on to my podcast tomorrow where I'm going to turn Zoom on record, take the audio <laughs> from it, 
and that's what I'll upload. But you know, hopefully the the listeners. Well, that's the joy of having good editing and good post production. But you can, you know, there is like a whole editing suite now where you can take out every um and um. So we all sound like we know what we're talking about. I'm aware, I'm aware of all these things. I've done them in the past, but they just take too much time. Yeah, I, no, I was lucky to work with someone who could do it for me. But yeah, that that's was what I need. Yeah, someone yeah. to edit out all my ums. I do so say it a lot. I'm going to say it more now that you've said that. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, but there you go. See, so you uh, you spoke to what well, it's not. It's not just you on the podcast or you and a guest. There's lots of people that you've spoken to. Lots of parents on there. Did you go out and ask for input or were they people that you were already working with, you already knew? Um, a lot of them I knew, so I contacted them and then we just had conversations. Um, I had an idea of how I wanted it to go and then I recorded conversations with all of them. Um, and it's tough when you edit it because you have to lose so much. Um, so many bits you think I'm not losing this this is an absolutely brilliant bit of and it's got to go because it's got to fit into that um, what is the each episode about 25 minutes Um, but the you're here on so this one episode two that came out today is quite sad but three and four are much more hopeful so it's a real you're going on a kind of narrative arc as someone told me that was what I learned through doing this um three and four are a lot more hopeful so they're about looking at other ways to learn and how the future could look for not just neurodivergent children but all children because the mental health crisis isn't just affecting neurodivergent children it is across the board I think the UK has some of the worst stats across the world for mental health um so yeah so it it, but it gets more it's definitely more hopeful in the end and i think that's something i try and do with all my work is the creative outlet for me makes it positive and it also gives me a space to vent and then be all right in my day-to-day life if that makes sense um two two really important things there i think that I i couldn't agree more i think the because we we're quite often on for forums or um, platforms talking about the education system and how I think broken it is mm. for neurodivergent children and young people. But like you say, the the mental health rates are ridiculous when you consider we're a country that considers ourselves, you know, uh, first world and you know that that kind of thing. Lots of opportunity, well, a good health and social care system you know allegedly yeah. it's it's not good enough and, and I think there's some big systemic changes that could actually help everybody really yeah uh, but and I think our, our education system is less and less reflective of of the world out there whether that's the way we parent now or the way that we work so I think that disconnect for young people is getting bigger Um, It doesn't make sense, you know, parents aren't putting on a suit and going into a job or a factory and doing that day in day out in a job for life. We don't work like that anymore. And yet we're instilling that in our education system to children, it just doesn't make sense. Mm. Um, So it's finding those, you know, when I talk about connection, it's relationship connection, but it's, 
it's how we connect, isn't it? And make people understand what we're putting them through with their learning, if you like. Why, why, why does it make sense to them? And I think for a lot, it doesn't anymore. Hundred percent. When also it's about like they're they're, they're kids. I yeah. don't, I don't, I wouldn't want my my child to grow up with the priority in his younger years to be grades and educate. You know, he's got his whole life for that. He can do that when he's twenty. Plenty of people don't decide what they want to do and commit to it until they're either at university or they've completely balls it up. Yeah, I might have done. You know, it's 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 nonsensical to say, "Oh, you're twelve. Let's really grind it out." I mean, what age is it? Is, I think is it fourteen? They have to decide on their options of what they want to do. Fourteen. Mm-hmm. Like I was playing Sonic the Hedgehog. Yeah. Like, how on earth are you meant to decide what you want to do then? I picked three of my options because I fancied one of the girls in those classes. That's it. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. what it comes down to, yeah. isn't it? You know, 100%. that's. The... <laughs> but even actually, um, one of the guests that I speak to, Chris Bagley. Um, Dr. Chris Bagley, he says that he's done a lot of um, research into mental health around young people. So he works a lot in Prus, um, he works a lot in young offenders, um, and he his work, his passion is about picking people up and and do, using strength based learning to help young people who have been given a really negative outlook and experience quite a lot of negativity around their education. But some of his research, he's gone across the board and he said what's really unbelievable is that um, even the people that have gone to the top universities are saying the same as the young people he talks to in prisons and proves. They're so dissatisfied. And I think the the other end where they've gone to the good universities, what they're saying is, I thought this would come, this was like a guarantee. So they're saying like, you know, I've gone to this top university, I've got the top grades, where's the job? So, you know, you come under with that, you have this assumption, it's going to lead to these great things, which, well, that's not necessarily how it works, because, you know, there's a lot more elements to getting a job and, and, and being happy. And yeah, well, even the way that I mean, I can't comment much on university, because six no, not can I. Six years. <laughs> but even up until a level what you're what you're doing is being good at um just re- memorizing what's been spoon-fed to you really aren't mm-hmm. you i mean i i didn't i didn't go to hardly any of my lessons for a levels i'd always mitch off but i read the pe textbook one mm-hmm. summer and that and just did all did well in all the exams you know it's it, I wasn't learning how to learn. I wasn't no. learning how to go, oh, this is what I'm good at. This is how I can find out more about it. This is mm-hmm. maybe an idea that no one's had about this particular topic before. But that's critical thinking. There was a uh, like a big wig scientist wrote an article at the weekend and he was saying, there's no point. If we're going to save the planet, there's no point just knowing facts. We need critical thinkers. <laughs> you know, we're not going to save it by remembering when the Battle of Hastings was. It's just, you know, we need more now. And that's where we're at, isn't it? We're at a point in sort of history, if you like, where things are, you know, I think we're, I, I saw a talk the other day and they said we've had, 
we're going through two industrial revolutions in a lifetime that's never happened before we've got huge environmental crisis you know and you've got kids getting told off for not wearing the right shoes mm. and learning the right facts it's like well, also i mean you know we we both work online and benefit from the internet and i'm i'm always careful to sort of put that into the pros and cons because you, you know it, it's it's not going anywhere we we can't just say it's it's the cause of everything it's, it's like it's a tool it's how you use it but yeah. our young people are exposed to all of that now so that stuff you said you know about the the, the planets falling apart this is happening there's, there's things go when i was 12 13 14 i would not have had a clue if any of that was happening because i no. didn't watch the news didn't read a paper um, and now our young people I think it's great that they have such a good world view and a wide world view. It's a lot to carry. And if the pressure yeah. of that is is ramped up on what they've also then got to get done at school and, you know, I mean, you could argue that to go in and be asked to sort of concentrate on making sure you can figure out the area of a triangle when you've just heard that there's a global pandemic is a little bit unsympathetic or unempathetic, <laughs> I, I would have said. But yeah. we did it. We did it for yeah. two years, you know. No, or, you, you know, even if it's not on that greater world level, what if it's just that your family are really struggling with, you know, the cost of living going through the roof um, and all of those issues that are affecting so many families right now? That's another disconnect, isn't it? To then go into that environment that's saying, I mean, we've got it at a school where we live. There's a school that's undersubscribed. It's in an area where people don't choose to live out of, a lot of people choose not to live there out of choice. You know, it's a lot of estates are there and like people, it's, yeah, it, it's got a, not a great, people don't like that area. Um, and there's a school there and they've got a new head teacher and he's gone in hard line on uniform and he's saying you've got a fur trim on that hood uh, on that coat you can't wear that i don't want to see you back here with that on a monday and you've got parents going i can't afford to buy another coat you know so it's complete alienation isn't it you know pick what do we say pick your battles but then they're nitpicking over the smallest stuff was the opposite of picking your battles really or is picking the wrong battles i suppose yeah yeah <laughs> i mean yeah. although as i've said before you don't pick back don't pick battles if someone's getting shot in a battle we pick priorities <laughs> don't want to fight <laughs> don't want to fight you'll lose um the i mean the, the i had heard before i heard a teacher talk about it on a podcast and i did look into it and there is a there's a, a sort of generalized educational practice um where the, the sort of unwritten rule is you come down hard on the little things and the kids don't bring knives in and try and stab you or you know burn the school down so you you sort of so what they then kick back against what they argue against is the the little things like i'm not wearing a tie f you you can't make me uh and and that's where they get their fight they get their rebellion if you like which i mean that's literally the opposite thing that would help someone with the PDF profile is, is literally picking them up on every day. It's like the opposite. Yeah, they just wouldn't go. That's it. Blown it. They won't yeah. come there. <laughs> we actually quite like the school, but it made me wear a tie. So he can... Yeah, yeah. Oh. 
Or actually, yeah. the only reason I burnt the school down was because he came down so hard on the side. Maybe it backfired <laughs> in some way. Um, one another thing that sort of ties into a question. Actually, uh, I know I, I, I looked into it recently. And in the last ten years, they've reduced um, PE, uh, mm-hmm. which is not for everyone, but sport and exercise, I think, is. And actually, one of my bugbears is that lots of the children, young people I work with, hate PE. Mm-hmm. But actually, when you give them loads of other activities to try there might be a sport that they love like say archery or Mm. weightlifting or something that's not a group activity because that's difficult maybe for them but they love the repetitiveness the focus that's that's great um but pe art and i think the other one was sort of practical type stuff like stuff with your hands resistant materials uh woodworking that kind of stuff yeah all those tangible subjects that would have probably been make or break for a lot of kids to get them in yeah Yeah. I know it's crazy therapeutic Um, in the doing of it isn't it now did you I was going to ask did you come across art and creativity at school or was that something that came later on um so my dad is an artist okay so 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 I was around it (laughs) um and so I was always drawing at home um it was always an outlet for me and then in school and again this you know I don't know if this would be allowed now I do remember in secondary school um I used to be allowed to go into the art room and spend more time in the art room when I couldn't be bothered to do my maths you know and again that sort of flexibility you know I don't know if that would be allowed now particularly when you're GCSE age um and that probably kept me going through and making it through was being able to spend more time on the subjects I like and having that flexibility over it. So that was a real, um, yeah, probably saved me to get get through school a lot of the time. Um, and again, that's kind of, I think that's often um, misunderstood when you're quite bright. You know, I was always a, like an A student in school. So there was this sort of pressure put on, you know, do well in maths, you know, you'll get an A, we'll put you in the top set, we'll put you in the top set of science. And, you know, I had no interest in them. So it was never, ever going into my brain. I used to call it these shutters. I'd sit there and be like, I'm really going to try and understand this today. And then the shutters would just come down. It was just, you know, because I had no interest. I couldn't, it would not go in. Um, And I think we talked about it on a live when Jess was saying, about that it's called like a spiky profile you know where you you're bright but some areas you really struggle with but it's not seen because you're you know bright mm. um and actually well, I, I i sometimes think that that spiky profile is actually just everyone but the the good bit the the bit that you're strong in is completely judged by society so if mm. if your bit that you're really strong on and interested in Mm. isn't something that's deemed useful you you're not seen as having like those strengths mm. um because i remember like years ago when i started this work there would still be crap banded around about you know um autistic people with special skills and like superpowers oh, yeah. and stuff but again i think it's just the, the, the to me that if there is a special skill or power it's actually whatever the interest is mm. The, the, I mean, it's, it, it, for me, I find that it's literally like my brain can't, it can't, doesn't work unless I'm interested. No. It just goes 
Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Why can't I do this thing that I know I could do yeah. somewhere else? Or, you know, it's, it's that kind of thing. Yeah, and I think, you know, going back to what you were saying about um, cutting those subjects, the amount of time you get in those areas at school now, um, I always felt, because even when I was at school, we only did art for two hours a week, um, I thought it was a lesser subject. Mm. I thought it was less worthy. So I can't imagine what it's like as a child now, if that's your, you know, what you're interested in. And I remember going to... um, we had to talk about work experience and you, do you remember you used to get two weeks to go somewhere for work yep. and i said that i wanted to be an animator or an archaeologist and you know just met with a blank face and it was only because my dad helped me that i'd contacted some animation studios and got some work in one in clapham they used to make little models for adverts um, and I, you know, but that's because I had a parent who was advocating for me and who could see, you know, so I was lucky there, but it did, it always felt like a lesser subject, something not as important. Which is ridiculous when you think like now, because so many things are online, there's so much scope for creativity to make a living from. Mm. that actually art is one of the few subjects in that they still do that would kind of give you some skills towards that you know yeah I mean if you were doing like anything kind of digital creative stuff Mm. that is a good place to be but then you know even that it's you know I don't want to dismiss all teachers because obviously there are good ones out there but do you remember that that they sort of were quite they weren't up to date on stuff. You know, you do, the world is moving so fast now, you do need industry people in there doing like U, UI stuff, you know, how to make this front fixing, whatever it's called for apps. And, you know, you need those people in there um, because it is moving fast. There's no way that, you know, people of our age or younger can be up to date on what's happening. So you need to be getting more industry in there. Well, this is a nice segue then onto what one thing I definitely wanted to wanted, wanted us to do because I, I loved your, what you said about the, the story arc and actually bringing mm. it round to a positive. And I wanted to make sure we sort of chatted today about some potential ideas, things that yeah. could help. And that's that sounds like a definite getting experts of industry in. I mean, it'd be a winner for the teachers because the kids hear it from a different perspective. It's a break to their day. <laughs> they can go and ex- have an extra fag and a coffee outside or whatever. Um, but the other thing I would I would add to that, because I, I went to school, I went to university with a lot of people that did sports science, which is what I did for about six months before I binned that off and then decided to be a writer and then binned that off. Just did loads of drugs. But anyway, that's, that's very that out loud. Should have said that out loud. Never mind. Um, but the, um, the, what was I talking about then? positives with learning oh teachers yeah so I know a lot of teachers um now because they did a sports science degree went on to do a PE teacher or whatever Uh, the amount of work marking Mm. stuff the restrictions on them to get the grade up and that's all they're measured really on is the grade I think just just dilutes all the quality of what they're doing Mm. To the point where you 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 could argue. I mean, I worked with one young person where I'm pretty sure that the the parents were doing all of the homework, and the school knew that, and they didn't give a shit because it meant that they could mark it off. 
and they were probably over supporting the child in exams which sounds like a ridiculous thing to be worried about but ultimately like if you know if he hasn't learned it he hasn't learned it it's better for us to know that rather than you bump up and give him loads of nudges and then when he does his GCSEs he fails because he's not got you there sat next to him Mm. And, and I mean if they did that if they gave teachers more freedom maybe they'd have the time like say if you are an IT teacher okay I can actually go and have a look what is the latest tech you know maybe you then get IT teachers that actually got into the job because they love IT and you'd get those passionate people teaching the yeah. subject that they're passionate I always about. say that I always say parents are trapped by these systems but so are the teachers you know we need to give the teachers autonomy we need to be hiring teachers because of what they genuinely bring you know what their what their special interests are and what they can bring to it and I did see an amazing uh self-directed school college that's near where I live and that is what they have. They have a lot of adults who have real passion and real interest in stuff. And the children can gravitate towards those people and get immersed in projects and learn from these adults. Um, and it's such an amazing thing to see. And they have such a good response from colleges as well because they said these children are able to work on their own to their own tasks, which is how you need to be able to work. Um, and so it's yeah when you see places like that and places that are trying to do it differently you know it gives you a real hope for how things could be um so was is there anything else you would wave over if you had a magic wand what other kind of so autonomy for teachers i would do strength-based learning so it would be really individualizing a lot more you'd have smaller classes so that children can work to their strengths work to what they're interested in not working on these um weird arbitrary developmental timelines of being able to read or write at a certain time that doesn't matter um because again that falls into the spiky profile you know i did speak to a psychologist and she was like well who's a pebble you know no one is yeah no one is this like (laughs) complete find me that completely well-rounded gold standard human being they don't exist they make it sound like that i mean i've got a two and a half year old and i've just been through all of that all these like oh he should be doing this at this age and doing that and doing this and it's just nonsense who measures all the kids who measures them all do you phone (laughs) up and report at six months and go oh he's doing x y and z even when you tell them oh yeah he's doing that oh okay well you know they don't write it down anywhere it doesn't go on a database does it it's ridiculous So it would be much more strength-based. Um, uniforms, while I think are a unifier, it would be kept to a bare minimum. So, you know, that would literally be, you know, dark trousers if that was needed and, you know, keep it as simple as it can be. Um, the day, I think, could start later. I don't think you need to have teenagers trying to get up at that time and causing all sorts of trouble at home. <laughs> um, and project-based work, which is how we work, you know, a, a system of learning that is much more reflective of how we work. Um, that would be preparation for adulthood. And then a lot more critical thinking and a lot more based on relationships, a lot less on hierarchy, because that doesn't exist societally anymore apart from with this amazing government we have and look where that's got us so (laughs) there are ways of doing it and being really creative with it without 
without sledgehammering it all to bits you know I think you can do it incrementally and those small changes could happen you know there are ways you can do it so definitely definitely I mean like for example if they just didn't make funding or any of the funding that the school's got um anything about their grades mm. you know I, I i know that the kickoff from that might be that grades might fall yeah but we've already seen that that's not an important measure anyway no necessarily so why do we even continue to to to, to use that i mean yes have a grading system and yes mm. you want to work towards getting the child whatever helps them the most but if we're not going to ask the kids at the end of school, which was your favourite teacher? Who made you feel most comfortable? Mm. You know, mm. are you happy? <laughs> like that yeah. question to me is more important, you know, but it's just not. Even and I think that goes either. back to what we were saying earlier about, you know, when you explore your own neurodivergence, it's it's a time. It gives you that time to smash away a lot of those um conversations or narratives that you've stuck by all your life smash them to bits smash the social constructs to bits start get you don't need them you think you need them but you don't need them you do need consistency of relationships you do need a calmness all those things are really important but you'll get those by smashing all the rest to bits most of it's nonsense I never had a Hindu. Look where, I, look where, you know, it's those sort of things, isn't it? But people adhere to all these things yeah. and they feel sad or anxious or that they've missed out if they haven't done these things. But they haven't. They've just done it in a way that works for them. 100%. 100%. Okay. Anything else you would change? Um... I don't really my probably my more controversial element is probably the send thing. I don't like it. Okay. Not because I don't want to recognize children's need, but I find it is very othering in our current system. And I just don't know if we would need so much of that if we had this is, you know, being a complete idealist, obviously, we're not anywhere near it. But I'm just saying if I could wave my magic wand, you know, could we have a system where we don't need to have all of that? Well, I was—I think I was saying this to someone the other day that it, this, the fact that we call it special educational needs—it's like almost, a condescending pat on the head. Yeah, it's like, oh, you can't learn without this. But actually, <laughs> all the other kids—they've got educational needs as well. It's just that their educational needs are probably easier to fit to the majority. Mm. So you know, they need maybe that structure, maybe that all kids in a classroom although personally I don't think any of them bloody need it anyway it's a load of bother yeah. in fact what what we're talking about is it's special educational needs or it's it's just that they don't fit in with what the teachers and adults educational needs yeah. are which is for you to sit still in the, a big group so I can teach you all at once yeah you know? um actually and- there's someone on the documentary says um when a school says that we can't meet your child's needs are they actually saying um your child's not going to meet the school needs yes mm. i would say well yes yes that's what that which is what say. i posted on harry you know harry's post that i was saying about this morning where he said which is a really important point about it's discrimination ultimately isn't it when schools are saying no we don't take kids who are pda in an autistic school yes that is cherry picking yes that is discrimination but in this 
crappy system that we live in, you have to flip it. You have to flip that that narrative to a positive one for your own family and your own sanity. So I would say to that, we don't want to go there anyway. Mm. Why are we going to want to go somewhere that doesn't take PDA kids? They're going to be based on behavioural practice. You know, keep your Teflon coated trousers, keep your condescending smiley faces. We don't want them anyway. (laughs) You know, Oh, the trousers, that is a good good description. That's got me right back to my school days. I had lots of issues with school trousers. Hideous. Again, though, when we were at my school, we, again, I think I was just lucky, really. But by the end, our uniform sort of just degenerated to, you had to have a white polo shirt or shirt, black bottoms. Yeah. And then whatever you want. I had, like, white yeah mates on my feet most of the time, but it, they just didn't seem to care anymore. But that was perfect. But, you know, it was kind yeah. of... I can't think yeah, yeah, I remember them trying to stop everyone wearing kickers. It was like, that's not happening. <laughs> Take the tag off your kickers. No, absolutely not. <laughs> God, the tag, yeah. <laughs> I remember being, how gutted I was when mine came off. <laughs> I need, I need a, can you just buy it? I remember like trying to go into a shop and see if I could just pinch one of the tags, but it didn't, yeah. Quite then hard. there was the other thing, wasn't there? People trying to put the bottle tops on like bros. Oh, yeah. <laughs> bros. <laughs> that's a, that's a, that's a part of blast from the past, bros. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Um, thank you for talking to me today, Eliza. And, uh, yeah, I will be. I'll be listening to the rest of the podcast with, with braided the podcast. Can you edit that sort of stuff out? You can, can't you? Take it all out. Yeah. God. My worry would be that for people that listen to my podcast, that they're normally about an hour or so. Mm. If someone, if I gave it to an editor and I said edit out all the ums and all the crap and all the nonsense, and they'd probably come back to me with a three and a half minute podcast <laughs> from what I've spoken about. Luckily, you're here to add the actual good content so um i hope so i hope it was all right where, where do you put so this is actually going on your facebook page or no so it's well you know i was Sorry. supposed to do that bit at the end you've just you've just steered me in Sorry. haven't you guided me in love it um so yes it's available on soundcloud and itunes what i tend to do is take this as an audio um, yeah. and then i chuck it chuck the audio up on soundcloud itunes no editing no, no <laughs> improvement to the sound quality. My mum is probably the main listener, I would have thought. Um, no, but people do seem to like it, so it's all right. It's all right. Okay, <laughs> I will share it. But if anyone is listening and would like a slightly more well-polished uh, podcast to listen to, then uh, definitely, definitely check out the Missing the Mark. It's called Missing the Mark, isn't it? I'm just yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. what, what yeah. I was listening to earlier. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, because I'm listening to The Wrong Fit, which is the first episode, isn't it? Oh, right, yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Awesome. And where can where can people go to find you, Eliza, in case they haven't heard um, of it? It's on, I have my own blog called missingthemark.blog, and it's also on Facebook and Twitter as well. Fantastic. Right, everybody. Well, thanks for listening. Uh, and also comment like share all those kind of things reviews very helpful very much appreciated uh, the more the more feedback we get the more time we can put into the podcast so uh, otherwise it will just remain this sort of me recording it not really doing any editing waffling on at the end when i should have ended it about two minutes ago so yeah thanks for listening 
Cheers, everybody.